0: Hello. Just a quick note about this episode of Stephanomics. The segment about Israel was recorded before the news this week that Prime Minister Benjamin
1: Netanyahu failed to form a new government. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. My name is Tom Orlick. I'm the chief economist for Bloomberg, and I'm filling in for this one week for your regular and eponymous host, Stephanie Flanders. Back when I lived in China, the big concern amongst Chinese economists was something they call a Huobi Zhenzheng, or a currency war. The fear in Beijing was that the United States was going to weaponize its financial system, and the big Wall Street banks would come to China promising growth and reform, But they would deliver chaos and crisis, the kind of meltdown which China's Asian neighbours experienced in 1997 and 1998. Well, it turns out those fears were misplaced. There is a conflict between the US and China, but it's not about currencies, it's about trade, and that's going to be the focus of today's episode. I'll be speaking with Wendy Cutler, who spent her career as one of the most senior trade negotiators in the United States, to get her insider's take on how trade negotiations between China and the US could evolve. And I'll be catching up with Jenny Leonard, one of Bloomberg's star trade reporters, to hear what it's like reporting from the front line of the trade war. Before we get there though, we're going to go to a part of the world which is more familiar through the lens of security or human rights than economics, let's go to Israel and hear from Ivan Levingston about some interesting developments in the labour market.
2: A
0: few weeks ago, I visited a co-working space in Jerusalem called Bizmax. I toured the standard mix of open work areas and smaller glassed-in rooms, complete with minimalist decor and an espresso machine. On first take, it could have been any WeWork-style office. But there was a key difference. BizMax is run for ultra-orthodox Jewish men, or in Hebrew, Charedim. With a kosher kitchen and religious books lying the shelves, it seeks to provide a place for them to get businesses off the ground. I went there in late April to meet with Yitzchak Meir Jalobsky, a 31-year-old father of five who runs his own event planning business called Asmachta. Icha, as he goes by, met me wearing the traditional garb of Haredi Jews. Black suit, white shirt, long curls falling from the corners of his hair. He also brought a kosher iPad with some restrictive settings that he manages his company on. He's just as busy as any small business owner making a go of it, but he also has to make time for prayer and religious obligations.
2: Uh, I have every day, about uh, average day one and a half uh, events, uh, big or small ones uh, between. Uh, one uh, twice a week I have a wedding, a uh, big wedding. Uh, 300 portions, 400 portions, uh, with, um, in a big hall with catering.
0: For good reason, Israel has earned the nickname Startup Nation. The country has a burgeoning tech sector driving the economy, but below the surface, there's trouble. Growth is stabilizing and productivity is sluggish. Because unemployment is near record lows, the country needs to find more workers ideally ones who are highly skilled. There are two groups economists have zeroed in on because they participate at a lower rate in the workforce. Ultra-Orthodox men like Icha and Arab-Israeli women. The Haredim present a particular challenge. With their rapid population growth and lower productivity, helping them climb in the workforce is a priority that may only intensify in urgency. And in Israel, surrounded by enemies, economic challenges become geopolitical ones. Without a first-rate economy, it's hard to maintain a first-rate military. Ich's success building a business came despite some challenges. He got married at age 19 and soon decided to work to help provide for his family. But he was locked out of some fields because of his religious education. On a visit to his home in Jerusalem, he told me what it was like getting started.
2: In the beginning, it was very hard because of the. Um, it's a low income. You have to learn everything by yourself. I didn't learn ever about that work or any work. I Just studied the Talmud and Torah, and then I went to start the business by seeing um, every evening. I went to, to events, and I was I was standing um, by the entrance of the kitchen to look um, to check out our uh, works.
0: Israel's Haredim are a growing part of the population and also a rising political force. As such, they are an increasingly important bloc for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in support of his right-wing governing coalitions. As their political influence rises with their demographic strength, that bodes well for the subsidies that benefit them, like child allowances and scholarships. In a way, the government is at odds with itself. Political leaders help protect funding that may discourage work, while others are trying to bring Haredim into the labor force, seeing it as a long term economic issue. At the start of this decade, government targets were set with the aim of increasing the employment rate of Haredi men and Arab Israeli women. Arab women are already close to hitting their goal, but for Haredi men, the story is different. While they have increasingly joined the workforce in recent years, progress is stagnating well below the hoped for level. One key reason is a cultural emphasis on religious study. I met with Avi Weiss, an economist and president of the Taub Center for Social Policy Studies in Israel, to dig into the reasons for the divergence.
3: The the difference between the the Haredi men and the Arab women um, is it's got to stem bottom line from desire. That the desire of the uh, Arab women um, really is to improve their lot be able to do better than than, than the past, to increase their education, to increase their employment. For the Haredim men, that's just not necessarily the case.
0: While the Haredim are interested in moving upward spiritually, Arab-Israeli women are focused on a different kind of upward mobility. Facing challenges including discrimination and higher rates of poverty, they're making strides in education, and at least in high school, increasingly studying fields like engineering that lead to more lucrative employment. Such progress has come even amid withering criticism of Israel in the West for how it treats its Arab citizens, as well as for the poor economic state of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. But there are some more positive stories out there. Khulud Ayudi is a 29-year-old Arab-Israeli woman from Jaffa with two daughters. While her parents didn't go to university and she married at the age of 21, she is now finishing a degree in political science. In between managing a family and studies, she's the co-CEO of an organization called Present Tense, which tries to reduce social gaps in marginalized communities in Israel through entrepreneurship. I met her for a morning chat at a municipal building in Jaffa where her organization hosts programming, and she told me about why Arab-Israeli women have been challenged joining the labor force.
3: I have all these expectations, and you need to to meet all the expectations. And then you have to choose what expectation you can't meet because it's so hard because you need to have a home, you need to have a, a, a you need to get married, you need to have children, you need to do all of these things. And, and also, if you can do a degree and, and work, it's great, but it's hard. It's tougher for, for Arab women.
0: With a tight labor market and shortages of engineers, Israel's future growth hinges in part on this group. If they succeed, it'll be a real bright spot. But they're not there yet.
2: A lot
3: of women really do break the glass ceiling. But a lot of them also stay at home. And uh, you can see the stats. I mean, it's getting better. But still, it's not in the in the correct fields, like in high tech.
0: Officials admit that the government's programs in this area still have a ways to go. Here's Yulia Eitan, head of the Employment and Diversity Administration, for Israel's Ministry of Labor, Social Affairs, and Social Services.
2: It's very clear if you are not bridging the gap with these two populations, and bringing it to productivity of a general population, the rates of growth of the Israeli economy are not going to be sufficient to have a normal level of growth and living. That's why it's crucial for us to succeed. But we are not alone here. You have communities, you have their ambitions, you have their beliefs, you have their uh, way of analyzing the reality we are living in.
0: Israel is a tiny country that doesn't trade with its neighbors and is in a state of war with some of them. Its economic edge, particularly in the world of tech, is a crucial strategic asset. It provides incentives for countries including the United States and those across Africa and Asia to forge stronger ties with the Jewish state. And for Prime Minister Netanyahu, winning on the economy increases the chances that he can keep winning, period. For Bloomberg News, I'm Ivan Levingston.
1: I'm delighted to be joined for this section by Wendy Cutler. Wendy is the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and a former deputy at the U.S. Trade Representative. That's a lot of words. Basically, what it means is there are few people in the world who know more about trade negotiations than Wendy does. Wendy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. So, Implicit in the Trump administration's approach to trade negotiations is the idea that the careful, consensus-based, multilateral approach followed by uh, past administrations basically got it wrong and gave China a free ride. Do you agree with that assessment?
3: Well, I think over time, various administrations tried different approaches towards China. I think supporting China's entry into the WTO was an important move. And as a result of China joining the WTO, we saw them significantly lower their tariffs for US and other imports, as well as revive thousands of regulations and laws. And we saw an overall opening. But what didn't occur was that the reform and market opening that was so vibrant in 2001 when China joined the WTO, it just didn't continue, particularly in recent years. And furthermore, the WTO was unable to negotiate new rules and new tariff lowering, which also led to a situation where the current WTO rules are really old rules, and they don't address the challenging practices that China has brought to the international trading system.
1: So, do you think that calls for this more direct bilateral approach, which the Trump administration uh, is now taking? Or if you were calling the shots, would your first call have been to Brussels and Tokyo and Seoul and to the WTO and an attempt to kind of marshal a multilateral coalition to tackle this challenge?
3: Well, following China's WTO accession, the administration tried, different administrations tried different approaches to deal with China, including dialogues, um, particularly the ones led by the Treasury Department, the special, these um, strategic and economic dialogue, as well as trade dialogues as well. And while some progress was made, the progress was incremental and the dialogues let, left many frustrated. The Obama administration put a real premium on challenging Chinese practices that were inconsistent with the WTO to dispute settlement in the WTO, and scored some important victories. But still, a lot of the problem problematic practices that China followed continued. So a new approach was needed, and I think in some respects, President Trump has gotten it right. By imposing tariffs, whether I support them or not, they have brought China to the negotiating table. However, I think what, what has been really flawed in the president's approach to dealing with China is the fact that we're going it alone. We're relying on unilateral measures, on bilateral negotiations, without trying to bring other countries on board with our approach, who also share similar concerns that the United States has with China. So I think we could be doing a much better job working with our allies and friends, both in Asia and around the world, And together, telling China that it needs to change its practices and pursue more market opening um, measures. And unfortunately, the Trump administration has decided not only to take on China, but also to take on our friends and allies. And as a result, trying to establish a multilateral coalition to approach China has been very hard to construct.
1: And it's not just the, the muscular bilateralism or the muscular unilateralism of the Trump administration, uh, which sets it apart from past administrations. It's also the personal role which Donald Trump is taking, that that positioning of I'm the only one who makes the decisions, that public approach with the tweets to declare policy changes uh, and the lack of predictability. Um now, you're someone who's really been at the centre of some of the most high-profile, most delicate trade negotiations which the US has, has conducted in, in recent years. Um, what's your take on that very personal approach which the president is taking? Does that strengthen the hand of his negotiators or do the costs of unpredictability outweigh the benefits?
3: Well, it's kind of a mixed picture. I think in every negotiation, a dose of unpredictability is useful. If your counterparts think they know your every move, they'll just game it all out. So some unpredictability could be useful. Um, But I think the president has gone way too far on that score. And as a result, our trading partners are left scratching their heads, not really knowing what they're being asked to do. Also, I think being really public Um, particularly in the final stages of trade negotiations, is not a a great approach. What I often would find at the end of trade negotiations, that having private conversations would be much more useful. Once you're public, and we're seeing this now in the volley of words between Beijing and Washington, both sides are, are setting up high expectations for their domestic publics on what they might be able to achieve. And also, they're reducing their flexibilities to find common ground. Now, maybe this is intentional. Maybe both sides have decided that they don't want a deal, um, because they're certainly acting like that. But again, um, I think being too public and too hard-hitting in the public with, with strong words is not a great way to bring talks to to closure.
1: That hardening of uh, rhetoric could bring some real costs uh, to the negotiations. Um, Wendy, I want to I want to focus the conversation on one of the specific moments in the last few weeks, which was that moment where Liu He was on his way to Washington DC, and it seemed like a deal was going to be signed, and then suddenly we heard from the U.S. side, no, China's tried to pull back from there from their previous commitments they're trying to pull their chips off the table and that's not acceptable to us so we're not going to sign a deal Um, now as someone who's been inside these kind of trade negotiations what's your take on that Um, is it common to see substantial changes in negotiating position behind the scenes from one or both sides in the final days before a deal is signed
3: well, unfortunately, it is. And this is, is not the first time a country has come to the negotiating table in the final stage and taken things off the table or has moved goalposts and asked the other uh, the other country to do more. What happens at the end of a trade negotiation is both sides in their capitals, I think, look at the entire deal and try and figure out, is this a deal that will garner public support? is this deal viable and credible, and will I be able to withstand the criticism? And I think that leads both sides at the end of a negotiation to do things like taking things off the table or asking the other country to do more. However, given the high stakes of this negotiation, I think these last-minute moves were extremely consequential and really led the U.S. to question whether China was acting in good faith in the u s view, China had agreed to many of the provisions already that it it you know took off the table um in the final stages. Um, and again, I think I think these issues can I don't think they're insurmountable. I think with creativity, they can be worked through. however, um, if both sides continue to be very public in their rhetoric and very hard line, um, with each passing day, this deal is going to be more difficult to conclude.
1: Wendy, let's 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 throw it forwards. Um, how do you see this playing out? The markets think maybe there's a deal at Osaka with President Trump and President Xi sitting down at that G20 meeting. There's also, as you mentioned, hardening rhetoric on both sides the threat of more tariffs, the threat of sanctions on Chinese firms. It feels like if we don't get a deal in Osaka, this could be messy, extended and expensive for both sides. Um, Could you handicap those probabilities for us?
3: Yes. So in my view, I think both sides um, right now think that they can outlive the other with respect to having no trade deal. The U.S. feels their economy is strong and that China's economy is weak, and therefore that the U.S. has the negotiating leverage. I think China feels that it has the political and economic tools that it needs to ensure that its citizens can survive um, this trade war, and in their view, history proves that. But the other development that's going to happen soon is that on June 1, China is going to impose the next round of its tariff hikes on $60 billion worth of U.S. imports. And the full impact of the U.S. tariff escalation on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports will be felt by June 1. And if you recall the last time the two leaders met on December 1 in the lead up to that meeting those tariffs started to have a very destructive effect on the both both sides economies so at last December 1 both leaders when they met agreed to launch talks for 90 days so if you ask me now I would my sense is that Come the meeting between Presidents Trump and Xi on the margins of the G20 meeting in Osaka, um, perhaps they will agree that both sides need to resume the negotiations and pick up from where they, where they left the talks um, in early May. But I don't see the deal coming together by the time of the G20 meeting. I think President Trump was very clear when he said in Japan just yesterday that he's in no rush to conclude these talks. But perhaps a month from now, he will feel like he's in a different position when these tariff, the new tariff actions start having a real bite for U.S. consumers, workers, farmers and businesses.
1: Okay, no deal in Osaka, but potentially an agreement to agree. Wendy Cutler from the Asia Society, thank you very much for your time and your insights. Thank you, Tom. The trade team at Bloomberg News is one of the scoopiest teams in the newsroom. And on that team, few are scoopier than Jenny Leonard. Jenny's joining me in the studio now uh, to talk about her experience of reporting the trade war um, and her take on how things are going to evolve. Uh, Jenny, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Jenny, you've been reporting this trade war uh, from the start. Um, Can you give us a sense of how the mood on the US side, the people around the president who are trying to shape policy, how has the mood in that group shifted from that first declaration from, from the president that trade wars are good and easy to win to the situation we find ourselves in today?
4: So actually, I think it hasn't evolved that much. Uh, The people who are closest to the president, I think, would still stand by that declaration that trade wars are good and easy to win. Uh, At least they they still believe that the U.S. has the resolve to actually come out as the winner of this. Um, I would say that the advisors uh, around the president and the vice president and the president himself are hearing more and more from Republicans on the Hill, from farmers, from constituencies that this is starting to bite and they they might not want to uh, see this go on much longer. So we might see a shift. We might start seeing a shift uh, sometime in the near future. But at this point, I think his advisors, the mood is still very much um, like it was a couple, a couple months ago.
1: And, and can you help us put a bit of a structure around our thinking on who those advisors are? Um, who are the hawks? who are the doves, who are the people who see China as a kind of existential threat, who are the people who just want to get a deal done?
4: So I think we've reported extensively on the sort of the two camps, the hawks and the doves. And um, my sources are very adamant in pointing out that Peter Navarro, who's the trade advisor that's uh, very far on the hawkish side, is not in the same place as USTR Lighthizer, who's also seen as a hawk. But Peter Navarro really sees China as an existential threat. He wrote books about China. Robert Lighthizer, the USTR, is more of a trade hawk. He's for you know decades has fought countries unfair subsidies and trading practices. And China, obviously, is on the forefront of that. But he's not obsessed with China, as maybe Peter Navarro is. And then we have the the doves, uh, maybe led by Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, who obviously gets a lot of calls from Wall Street, who um, would really like to see a deal done uh, soon. And then we have the national security advisors like John Bolton, who actually, their voice has, has been elevated a lot in this administration. And they have a say in trade decisions now, which wasn't the case uh, in previous administrations.
1: And when something like the sanctions on Huawei happen, Jenny, um, is that coming, in your sense, from an integrated policy? Are the trade negotiators aware that those Huawei sanctions are going to drop? Or is that coming out of left field from a different part of the administration?
4: Yeah, uh, good question. I think it's um, it, it's a little bit of both in that uh, the Huawei sanction ha- sanctions have been discussed for a long time, so it it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone on the trade team that someone like John Bolton has been pushing for that. Uh, but then when it actually happened uh, last week or two weeks ago, you know, our reporting showed that everyone was overwhelmed with actually rolling out and implementing that those sanctions, because it did come out of nowhere to many people who weren't involved in these discussions that John Bolton had with the president
1: about this. And which group do you put the president in? Is he an instinctive member of one group, or is he moving between them depending on circumstances?
4: Yeah, it really depends on the day for the president. Um, You know, a good example was uh, last week when he was in Japan, um, or when he left for Japan, he was talking about Huawei and how there's really a, a, a big national security risk and how that's really a problem. And in the next sentence, he totally undermined what he had just said and what his national security advisors want him to say by saying, well, we might wrap this into some kind of trade deal sometime soon. And so, you know, he he's really swinging. And we've known this about the president uh, for a while now that he, he likes these policy debates and having them play out in front of him. Um, and he sides with whoever you know he wants to side in that moment, and he changes his mind often, which keeps all of his advisors on their toes for
1: sure that unpredictability from the president, um, as we heard from Wendy Cutler, um, potentially an advantage at some points in the negotiation, uh, but also evidently coming at some costs, uh, including to his own side. Um, Jenny let 's throw this forwards. Tell us about your expectation um, or how we should think about that She trump meeting at the G20. Are the markets right that we could get a deal there or do you see that as excessively optimistic?
4: I think the markets are always a little more optimistic than uh, reality. Uh, I think a deal might not be possible in the next month because that would really take, you know, Lighthizer and Leo Hood to sit down again to go over, you know, basically go to the status quo before China reneged on his on its commitments. And I don't really see that happening. At the same time, I would say anything can happen when President Trump gets in a room with President Xi. We've seen this multiple times. Trump reversed his ban on on ZTE, the telecom equipment maker, last year at the request of Xi Jinping. So I wouldn't rule anything out, but um, a deal seems a little bit too ambitious.
1: Okay. Personalities of the two leaders crucial as we prepare for that G20 meeting. Jenny Leonard, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we toyed with renaming it Tomonomics but producer Scott Landman advised me that that was a bad idea for a single episode and potentially a career-ending mistake for me personally. So thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Stephanie Flanders will return next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter, and you can also find me at Tom Orlick. The story in this episode was reported and written by Ivan Levingston. It was produced by Magnus Henriksen and edited by Scott Landman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Wendy Cutler, Jenny Leonard and Michael Arnold. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.